Well, hey guys, quick disclaimer here before I introduce the show as normal. Um, there's going to be some crap audio on my side of things here. Um, and sometimes when the guest is speaking, you're going to hear typing in the background and other crap like that. I'm sorry. Um, this goes back to a problem that I continue to have with Skype, and it makes me want to go to where Skype is and find somebody who's responsible for it and smack them. But I've recently upgraded the quality of the microphone, which is great when it works, but for some reason, Skype keeps selecting back to the onboard microphone for the computer, the, the built-in mic, which means when my guest is talking, I hit the mute button, etc., so that if I'm making notes or something, y'all don't hear it. And I think it's muted and it's not. On top of it, the freaking gain on the onboard microphone just sets itself wherever the hell it wants to. So this is another one of those episodes you hear me typing and stuff, and I'm going to see what I can do for redundancy to prevent this from hacking, ha happening again. But this is why you're going to hear this. Now let's go ahead with our regularly scheduled programming. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August the 18th, 2021. This is episode 2937 of the Survival Podcast. Anyway, I have a great episode for you today. And if you looked at this title and you're like, I'm not sure, and now you're listening to me and you're wondering, Should you care about true digital privacy, and does this show apply to you if you're not a technical person? Yes, and yes, and yes. Matt Hill's coming on. He's with Start9 Technology. If you can use an iPhone or uh, an Android phone, install and use apps. If you can do that, you can do this. It's not the same, but it's the same but different, man. Um, that's what I realized during this conversation, that that's what they've done. They've taken... All of these great open source, totally private technologies that you can run and host yourself and basically built a box that if you can plug in some cords, follow some on-screen prompts, and click on some mouse clicks, you can have complete and total privacy for almost everything that you do digitally today. And you don't have to pay over and over again to do it. It's not stupid cheap, but it's not expensive. A few hundred bucks, you buy the equipment, you install it, it's yours forever. You run it, you operate it, it's yours. There's no fee, there's no service. No one can see what's on it. It's totally encrypted. They can't see what's on it. There's no connection back to the mothership, so to speak. And anybody can do this. I want to just say it one more time before anybody starts rolling their eyes and uh, this sounds too complicated. No. This is that easy. This is plugging some stuff in, entering a web address, hitting enter, and following some prompts. And the next thing you know, you have fully enabled, completely 100%, totally encrypted, end-to-end -end private messaging. Next thing you know, you're not using Google Drive anymore. You have an absolutely, totally private way to store files that you can access from anywhere in the world that no one can get their hands on. Just a few clicks, and you can do things like you can send somebody a message that you want to be read one time, and it'll burn and incinerate itself, and a hell of a lot more. You're going to hear all about this today. It's really easy to do. This is important. 
you have been turned into basically a Maasai cattle. If you never heard of the Maasai in Africa and how they treat their cattle, that's what we have become. You know, most people that ranch or farm cattle, you either milk the cow or you kill the cow. The Maasai, and I have nothing against the Maasai, but this, it does, this is not the way a human should be treated. The Maasai want to get protein from their cattle beyond the milk, but they don't want to kill the cattle because the cattle have too much value to them, kind of like tax farmers do. So what they do is they bleed the cattle, and they consume the milk and the blood of the cow, but that way they can keep parasiting the cow, and the cow never dies until you know it's time for a cow to die. Does that sound familiar? That's what's being done to you, yes, by the state with your tax money, but that's being what's done to you by the technocracy and the oligarchy. Privacy has gone the way of the dodo bird. We're here to give it back to you by installing a box and clicking some buttons. It really can be that simple. You'll hear about that from Matt in just a bit. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ridge Wallet. You know, we're talking about privacy today. Well, every other card, ID, etc. that you're carrying around today has a computer chip in it. And those computer chips can be scanned. They can be cloned. Not if you're using a rich wallet. If you're using a rich wallet, it's ensconced in titanium and it's not going to happen. You have privacy. It's also a minimalist wallet. It carries great. It looks good. I get compliments on mine all the time when I go somewhere to pay for something. I'm like, oh, that's the Ridge wallet. They are now a national brand. And they are a sponsor of the show, and they do a discount for MSB. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Been reading Backwoods Home Ma Magazine, honest to God, since 1993. Really easy to endorse something that you've been a customer of since 1993. The latest edition is sitting on the counter in the kitchen And I haven't got to read it yet, but I'm sure I'll enjoy it like I always do. If you've ever wondered how much, how I have this broad depth of knowledge on homesteading and self-sufficiency and all, a lot of it came from, you know, over 20 years, over two decades, almost three now, of reading Backwoods Home magazine. Give them a shot. You'll see why. Check them out at backwoodshome.com. With that, let's go ahead and get our special guest on. Again, his name is Matt Hill. He's an awesome guy. And what he's doing with Start 9, I knew it was good, but as we had... Um, this discussion, I discovered it was even better than I thought. This is really something you need to know about. I'm really excited to bring it to you. And with that, hey, Matt, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jack. Glad to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you on. We're going to be talking about sovereign computing and privacy today. And that's a really big topic, as you might know, uh, with myself. It's something I've tried to talk to the audience quite a bit about over the years. But before we do that, can we start out with, you know, Who who and what is a Matt Hill? Um, kind of what's your background and how did you end up in, in, in the world that you're in today? Well, that's a very large topic, I suppose. Um, well, I am, I guess, first and foremost, in terms of what's important here, uh, a freedom advocate, um, individual liberty. Uh, my past um, was in the Ron Paul Uh, world, you know, Ron Paul 2012, uh, very active uh, with that campaign and was quite devastated with the way that that ended and um, didn't really see a lot of ways that we could win uh, against that kind of a, a system, uh, at least using political means. And then uh, over the subsequent years, sort of fell into uh, Bitcoin uh, and discovered, you know, this idea of 
sovereign computing, that we can remove ourselves uh, from the system uh, that, you know, I, I was fighting politically against using technology. That technology was a way for us to fight back uh, individual by individual. And if enough individuals did it, then maybe we could affect some real permanent change uh, on a large scale. So I'm a technologist. Uh, I'm a lover of freedom. I have a background across multiple different industries. I grew up in a wholesale bread and bagel bakery. I got into uh, industrial plastics recycling for a few years where we were, you know, shredding up a million pounds a month of plastic and selling it all over the world as a reborn commodity. Um, I helped a friend of mine bootstrap a fence company in Colorado. Uh, I built apps for the App Store and Google Play Store. I taught myself to code in my late 20s and have basically been a fanatic in that realm ever since. Um, I worked and helped bootstrap Salt Lending, uh, the company. I was their first engineering hire and ended up building uh, out their platform and engineering department so that they could do their uh, cryptocurrency-backed lending platform. Uh, ultimately left there, founded Start9 with my co-founders who also came from Salt uh, and are trying to now give, uh, you know, uh, the, the power of, of independent sovereign computing to the average individual. And that's our, that's our mission. And, and we want to probably start off talking a little bit about the cloud, right? Like the cloud is uh, advertised on TV as though it is one place. Uh, and most people today are using cloud services. If you're using Gmail, it's a, it's a cloud service, what have you. What is the problem, or what I should say are the problems with an S, with cloud computing today? Because it's something that I think people have allowed convenience to overtake what is best for them uh, in, in a big way. Yep. Uh, we couldn't agree more. That's actually the essential thesis of our business model is that the cloud has problems. Um, and, you know, one of our favorite sayings is there is no cloud. There's just somebody else's computer. Um, but that's really what a cloud is, right? When you use your cell phone or your laptop to access your data in the cloud or to communicate through the cloud using text messaging or something like Skype, for instance, or any of the other, you know, uh, tons of hosted services that you came up with subscription for or are free, um, what you're really doing is you're just using a remote control. Your cell phone, your computer, your desktop, your laptop, these things are just remote controls that are operating somebody else's computer, and we call that the cloud. And the people who own that computer have shrunk in number and grown in power uh, to pretty staggering degrees over the last two decades, right? The cloud business model and movement um, has been Silicon Valley's and the VC's sort of like hot topic for a couple of decades now. Um, and they've really gotten quite large, quite powerful, and everything that you do flows through them. And most of the cost of that is in what we call negative space. You don't actually feel it and see it on a daily basis. Most people in most places do not experience directly the uh, negative or drawbacks of the cloud. Um, they, they only experience the benefits, which is that I can open my computer and see a picture that I just took with my phone 30 minutes earlier because they synced up through the cloud, and that's a nice benefit. What they didn't uh, see is the, the cost associated with that, which was the, uh, the middleman presence where the data was collected, stored, eventually monetized, and potentially 
uh, as we're seeing more and more these days, abused uh, by both the company that collected the data and the people who have uh, authority over them. Um, completely agree. So let's kind of talk about this whole idea of it's somebody else's computer a little bit from a standpoint of a server. Server sounds like a really big fancy word. Can we just start about what is a server and how can, how are they or can they be used by the average person? Um, yeah, so servers um, are just computers, uh, as in any computer could act as a server. So a server is less a description of the physical form of a computer and more of a description of what that computer is doing. So if a computer is up 24-7, 365, right? Servers are designed to be up all the time because if they're not up, then they can't do their job. They can't sync data. They can't facilitate communications. They can't relay information. So servers are computers that are designed to run all the time. They are computers that are designed to be connected to a network, whether that is an intra-network or a global internet. They are designed to be connected all the time, and they are running services. We like to use the word services. Oftentimes you could call them apps, you could call them daemons, but basically they are running pieces of software that have a job to do that run all day, every day, oftentimes connecting over a network. And that's all that a server is. It's just a fancy word for a computer that runs all the time and has a bunch of services, aka background processes, that are running. Um, and that doesn't sound very cool or fancy or powerful. Um, but when you recognize that all of human activity these days, almost everything that you do is in one way or another flowing through a server somewhere, um, you might start to realize that the people who control those servers kind of have you by the, by the balls. Um, they can, they can, uh, look at you. They can collect what you're doing there. They can charge you. They kind of can do whatever they want. And if you don't, by the rules, if you don't accept the terms of agreement, uh, if you don't, you know, pay the bill, then you really can't do some very basic things in your life. Uh, you can't text message, you can't email, you can't, you know, store data and access it from anywhere. So, who owns servers? Like, who has all this power? Good question. Um, <laughs> currently, most of what an average person is doing on their phone or laptop is flowing through one of the bigs, right? You have uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Oracle, um, Facebook, right? There's It's the big ones. Um, and all your data is flowing through these uh, people. And that's how they became so powerful, because they're running giant servers that run interesting pieces of software that many people around the world want to use. And so what they do is they give you, the client, right, the user interface for free. They say, oh, here's a free app. And then that app automatically plugs into the mothership and all the data flows through them. So the big, big tech giants are running all the servers that you use. Uh, other people who run servers are wealthy individuals who can afford to both purchase uh, the hardware, the software, and the technical people to uh, help them run it. Uh, powerful individuals like uh, politicians have their own servers, as we've seen uh, in the past with uh, say, for instance, Hillary Clinton's email server uh, scandal thing, um, and also highly technical people. So you have powerful corporations, wealthy individuals, powerful individuals, and 
technical individuals are all at least capable of running their own personal server, even though not all of them do, but that's who it's uh, limited to. And those people have inherently, by the very virtue of running their own server, uh, less dependence on others. They are more independent as human beings. They can do things in their life without asking permission or paying uh, tribute <laughs> to, to accomplish those very simple things like text messaging your mother. You know, um, I run a server for a variety of reasons. The primary one is for hosting the show because it gives me complete autonomy and independence from some web host that decides we don't want you to do that anymore. Yep. Um, it's, it's a lot like first-class airline tickets, in my opinion, in that it costs a lot more, but it's worth it. And it's worth more than it costs. I, I think maybe we're going to talk about some ways it doesn't have to cost a lot more. But I'm saying as a person that has a server bill that not today, but at one time in my life, I paid less in rent than I pay for a server today. It's worth every penny. It's worth every stinking penny because no one can tell me what content I can run, what applications I can run, what my websites can do, etc. Great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you're <laughs> you're you're in the minority. But yeah, I, you, you said technically astute, and again, I'm in business, right? So like the average person isn't going to you know be out paying close to a thousand dollars a month for a dedicated box, and they, they probably shouldn't be. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. But there's better things they can do that with that money. But how can the average person take control of this? Um, so let me comment on one thing that you said first, and then I'll answer that question, um, which is I wanted to comment on that there are actually degrees of running your own server. It's not a binary thing, right? So the most extreme is that you literally have the servers in your basement, right, that you have physical hardware on premise that you and you alone control the key to the cabinet to, and that it's running software that you yourself obtained, verified, installed, configured, and ran. That is the, you know, extreme side of the equation. You have to buy hardware. You have to be very technical. Something in the middle are these sort of like server farms that have popped up, like AWS or Heroku or um, Azure, where they basically rent physical hardware to individuals on a virtual basis, right? This is a VPS, virtual private server. So you can uh, pay a monthly fee, which those costs are getting quite crazy these days with AWS, for instance. Um where you pay a monthly fee and they allocate a real box, a real server to you, or a piece of a, virtu of, a of a server in their warehouse, and you control it. You have the keys, and that's slightly less sovereign, even though we have not yet seen massive abuse of power there. But take Parler, for instance. Like Parler was running on AWS servers, um, where it's like, hey, Parler is self-hosting its own stuff. It has its own stuff. Because they weren't running it on their own actual metal at the end of the day, Amazon could still pull the plug on them. Um, and then there's like less and less degrees where, you know, you're, the end game is you're using a client, free client application on your phone and using a server that's wholly owned and controlled by somebody else. So there's sort of degrees of this. Um, okay, now to your question about how can an individual who does not have power or money or technical expertise do this. Um, the answer is that until us and 
maybe a couple others like us, because this is starting to become a thing now, uh, you really couldn't. There really was no feasible way for a non-technical, non-wealthy individual to viably host their own services on their own server and use them um, with, you know, reliability. Um, and so that was the problem that we set out to solve, was how can we grant this enormously um, beneficial power to everyone, right? So it's not like we invented a new technology. There's no, like, we didn't invent servers. Um, but we're making them more accessible. And the way that we did that is the same way that it, uh, those who came before us, Apple, Microsoft, did it with personal computers, right? Back in the 70s, uh, a personal computer was not, especially one that was networked in any way, was not really accessible to an average person. They were for geeks and hobbyists. Um, and what the early tech giants recognized, the Bill Gates and Steve Jobs of the world, is that what was needed was an operating system, a graphical user interface point and click operating system that would make the operation of a personal computer accessible to a child. Um, and that's what they set out to do with Windows and the early Macs, uh, the Apple II, for instance. So that is exactly what we are doing. We are taking the exact same problem, right, with a twist, uh, and with a similar solution with a twist, and applying it, as in we have developed an operating system, um, unprecedented, really, uh, and still, we believe, leaps and bounds ahead of anything else on the market, that enables a totally non-technical individual to operate, not only to discover, download, install services that run on a personal server, but to maintain that server in perpetuity, to be able to handle network outages, power outages, um, to be able to handle dependencies, like when a new version of Bitcoin comes out, um, does all the downstream dependence of Bitcoin, like Lightning, uh, break all of a sudden, or do they continue to work? What happens if you want to configure one of your services in a particular way? Uh, do you have to get on the command line and SSH into the box and enter commands? No, because nobody would ever do that. What you have to do is open a settings menu and toggle some buttons and click save and you're done. So what we have done is we have taken the skill required, skill and education level required to opt to run and operate a personal server. Uh, and we have lowered it dramatically um, in a way that most people don't realize <laughs> um, because we're, we, we fight against this all the time is uh, we get pushed back all the time about, you know, nobody's going to host their own Bitcoin node. Nobody's going to run their own stuff. Like the internet is what it is. And we're, we just sort of smirk and we're like, it just needed an operating system um, and a plug and play device. And so that's what we have built. So the short answer to your question, that was a long version. The short answer to your question is companies like us, products like ours. So, and is that running your own server basically then? And if, if you are, um, what benefits are there to it and, and, and what services might be most important to, to run on it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, what we sell is the extreme version of independence, right? There is no virtual box. It's not a virtual private server. It is a physical device that sits in your home. You plug it into the wall 
Uh, and, and it runs all day and night, 24-7, 365. And through a graphical user interface, a very point and click, we even have a mobile, right? Uh, you know, tap and swipe. Um, you can shop for services to install, just like you would shop for apps to install on your phone, except here you're shopping for services to install on your server. You click a button and it downloads and installs it. Then you go into the settings and you configure it however you want. Most of the defaults will usually just work. You don't have to do anything if you don't want. And then click start and it'll be running on this box in your home 24-7, 365. And it can handle network issues, power outages. It can handle dependencies. It can do, it does graphical configuration. It does health checks against itself so that if anything is going wrong, it can notify you. And, um, it's a very, very powerful and very, very accessible physical device that sits in your home. Now, the second part of your question, who cares? <laughs> All right, what can you do with it? I have a black box sitting in my home and it's running services. So what? Um, so here's what you can do today currently with our, with our product. Um, you can shop through in the, in the marketplace and download services that do the following. One, um, file storage. So we have a service on our marketplace called File Browser, which is basically Google Drive or uh, Dropbox or OneDrive, right? Take your pick. Um, it is a website that you go to, log in, upload files, download files, organize files into directories, share files with friends and family. You can even give other people access to your server. They can create their own usernames and passwords and log in. And the website that you're going to, the website that this that you're logging into is your website. It's not like you're logging into somebody else's website, somebody else's server. The website is being served, hosted on the box in your home. So no matter where you are in the world, you go to a unique website that nobody even knows exists. You are the only person on earth who knows that this website exists. And the website address is gibberish, gibberish, gibberish dot onion, because these are all running as Tor hidden services, a.k.a. Darknet websites, for those who are familiar with the term. We hate the term Darknet. We like to refer to it as the private net. But every service that you install onto your server hosts itself as a private net website that you can access from anywhere in the world, log in with yourself, and then do anything that you would ordinarily do using Dropbox or Google Drive or OneDrive. So that's just one service. Another service is Bitwarden. We love Bitwarden. It's a password manager. If there's one thing that you could do to make yourself more secure in the digital realm, it is to use a password manager. <laughs> Everyone on earth should be using a password manager. It allows you to use long, complex passwords that are different for every single site, but never have to remember any of them. You can use uh, a password that you can remember that is sufficiently complex along with 2FA to access your password manager in order to gain access to the rest of your passwords. The problem is, is that most password managers today, all your passwords are sitting on somebody else's computer. <laughs> and so long as they're running the software they claim to be running and they're as benevolent as they claim to be, and you're never a, you know, somebody who has violated their terms or the terms of their authorities, then your passwords might be available to you. But if they are incompetent or malicious in any way, then your entire digital life could be shut down with the push of a button. 
So what we recommend is use a password manager, but use your own server to store the files. And immediately people go, well, I don't know how to do that. And we say, uh, push a button on our device and you'll be doing that. Um, my wife, for instance, who is not a technical person, would never have gone about doing something like this, uses Bitwarden running on her embassy uh, in our home every day. And it requires absolutely no advanced technical knowledge over using an ordinary password manager. You don't even realize that you're talking to a device in your home. It's completely obfuscated. So that's another one. Um, we have another service called PhotoView, which is basically Google Photos. It allows you to organize photos into different directories and share them, create albums. It even has facial recognition so that it'll automatically uh, sort your photos into various folders by name of the person, for instance. Um, and PhotoView actually uses File Browser, the first service that I mentioned, as its file storage system. So Embassy OS, our operating system, uh, handles all this for you. That you, you as the user do not have to install PhotoView and then tell PhotoView, uh, I want you to use that directory over there for the, you don't have to do any of that. It just automatically works. Um, so any photo that you upload to your cloud, to your file browser uh, drive, will automatically show up in PhotoView and get sorted into folders and all that so that you can share it and view it and do albums and everything. Um, do you want me to keep going? I got a couple more. That's yeah, fun. absolutely. Please do. Um, I, I noticed something in your uh, notes about Bitcoin notes. Can you run a Bitcoin note on this? Bitcoin note is one button. Push a button, run the full Bitcoin node. It's awesome. Bitcoin was the first service we added to the store um, because our initial target market as a company, we decided like we knew we were going, you know, broad based, sovereign, independent computing from day one. We knew that that's what we were doing. But we knew that very few people in this world would understand what I just said, right? They, um, but Bitcoiners would. We knew that the hardline Bitcoiners who were already running their own nodes and knew the, why it was important to run your own node would immediately recognize the value of what we were building. And so we catered to them first. Um, and in a way, that backfired a little because then we kind of got pegged as a Bitcoin node company. Like everyone was like, oh, Start nine empathy, run your own Bitcoin node. And we're like, yeah, you we that's great, you should do that, right? But that's not all it does. <laughs> it's much bigger. That's just a thing that it does that a lot of people are sitting around going, I'd like to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So look, Bitcoin was the first service we put on our store. Um, we also now offer lightning nodes. Uh, at both LND and C Lightning. Those are probably the two most popular. Uh, hold, hold on. Is it establishing a Lightning known as EZ on your service as a Bitcoin node, like just push a button? It's, it's literally a button. Now We're going we're gonna to do business because I've been wanting to set up a Lightning node. Cool. So Lightning is happening, okay? Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, it's happening. We have a front row seat to the growth of the Lightning network because we are selling the devices that people are using to connect into the Lightning network. It's going parabolic. It's happening, um, and don't miss it. It's really cool. There's a, there's a lot of people right now. Uh, there's actually a big movement, which is I, I can get into a little bit. It might be very interesting, um, called Plebnet. Uh, but let's shelf that for a minute. Let me finish the like rundown of a couple more services that we offer. And Please do. Go ahead, and this is a podcast, not a radio show. 
Take as much time. Tell us as much as you have. Don't worry about it. Cool. All right. Um, so I left off at photo view. All right. So a big one that we offer um, is Matrix. So Matrix is a federated messaging protocol. It's not an app, right? Matrix is like Bitcoin. It's a protocol. Uh, it's an internet protocol. And any service abiding by that protocol can participate on the network. Um, so there's, we, we added Matrix to our marketplace. And when you download Matrix, you are immediately plugged in to a federated, open source, encrypted, and because we use Tor, onion routed messaging federation. Um, and what that means in layman's terms is you can now message with anyone in your life, friends, family, colleagues, you name it, without the presence of a third party. Not only is it end-to-end encrypted, not only is it onion routed on the Tor network, but there's literally nobody between you and the recipient of your message and vice versa that has any idea who you are, any idea what you're sending, or requires any trust whatsoever. There's no central servers involved. Um, so Matrix running on an embassy in your home uh, is arguably the most private, independent, sovereign messaging system the world has ever seen. You can talk to someone on the other side of the world with impunity. Not only can nobody stop you from saying what you want to say, but they don't even know that you're doing it. The very fact that the conversation is happening is unknown to everyone. Now, that's a dangerous statement. Right, we get challenged a lot <laughs> on the technology that we are offering because people go, whoa, 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 you're saying that like really bad people could could get away with stuff. And to which we respond, yes. Again, we didn't invent this technology. Right? This technology has already been available to powerful people, rich people, technical people. And you better believe the people who are doing quote bad things and They're going to take these extra measures to make sure that they're already doing this. What we have done is made this possible for everyone else, right? We're equalizing the playing field, taking something that has always been in the hands of the powerful and the evil, and we are giving it (laughs) to the people. So everyone should have this ability. You should be able to mess up. I, I, I want to stop you there for a second because I, I think that's something that maybe this audience is very receptive to, but who knows who's going to hear this, new people every day. That can't be overstated. That when people start saying, and I'm just going to say out what it is, stupid shit, ignorant shit like, oh, but then bad people can do this. The people that do bad stuff are highly financed and have lots of money, and there's no one who really wants to do this that can't do this. The person who chooses convenience over security and privacy for themselves is the person that doesn't do this already. And that's the person you're enabling to do it. And I I think that is beyond important. That is over-the-top important. And and then my other side of this is, you know what, If if, this is how I feel about it with our government and with all these corporations – it, and I'm going to say a word that's going to piss some people off, so skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't like a four-letter word that rhymes with truck. But if you weren't fucking spying on us, we wouldn't fucking have to do it. And, and I hate to be that blunt, but that's the truth. 
we, the reason we have to do this is because you're spying on every single thing that we do, and there is no way for the average person to know, oh, you have nothing to hide, so you have nothing to fear, because you have no idea what you're going to have to fear in the future that you don't fear now, because look at the way people's lives have been destroyed over shit that even five years ago nobody would have thought twice about. We now have people being appointed to jobs, not getting confirmed into jobs because of something that they said in a yearbook in the 1980s. That's hard to track down, and that's a real story that recently happened. Digital records are forever, and if they don't like what's going on, the only people they have to blame is themselves. It reminds me of my uncle, or my, my uncle, I'm sorry, my, my, my son's uncle, my brother-in-law, who's a cop, who was trying to explain to me how much more bad pot is than it is used to be. And I said, you know what, that's because you guys prosecuted a drug war for 40 years, and you set a size limit, so they put more potency in the same amount of size, so they'd go to jail for less time. You did this. And that's how I feel about any privacy technology being employed today. The government and the corporations and the oligarchy and the technocracy, you're responsible. I don't care that you don't like it. I'm sorry, I just soapbox moment there. <laughs> Love it. We, yeah, we are a reaction, right? We, we didn't cook this up. We are inevitable. What Start9 is doing is a reaction to a world that has become, quite frankly, a bit dangerous uh, for good-meaning everyday people. Um, and, you know, further, beyond everything that you just said, there is a, there is a, there is a apolitical argument, a philosophic argument to be made for what we are doing as well which is cost. There is an economic consideration going on here as well, which is that if everything that you do in your digital life is flowing through a broker, a central party, a third party, right? Everyone knows what happens to costs in those scenarios. Cutting out the middlemen is highly economically efficient. And so currently you don't feel this cost because you are the product, because they're taking your data and monetizing it, right? They are turning your valuable data, which you are giving freely, and monetizing it. However, there's a movement taking place right now, and it's gaining very broad support and steam, which is data privacy. All you have to do is look at an Apple billboard to see the word privacy. They are driving the privacy narrative down your throat. And the reason that Apple is doing that is because they have a team of highly paid experts who do market research. And what those market research people have reported back to management at Apple is people care about privacy. People care about their data. Suddenly, all of a sudden, everything you just said is not radical. Lots of people are starting to get on board with this. Ordinary people are starting to say no when the prompt pops up onto their screen and says, I don't want to give you my data. I don't want to share anonymous analytics, et cetera, et cetera. And as a reaction to this public demand for increased privacy, ironically, lawmakers are coming in now and requiring uh, companies like Apple and Google to be more transparent about their data collection policies and to allow users to opt out, right? So... As a consequence of this rising awareness, companies are not going to be able to monetize your data to the same extent 
that they have gotten away with over the last couple of decades. What are they going to do to backfill those revenues? Subscriptions. The subscriptions are about to get crazy. We've already seen it with some of the streaming services where you now have, like, if you want to watch any kind of show anywhere, it's five bucks a month, right? Everything is nickel and dime on a monthly basis. Well, wait a couple more years. And if you have 40 apps on your phone, you will have 40 $10 a month subscription. Everything is going to be the subscription SaaS model, which is what the VCs in Silicon Valley have been eating up uh, in anticipation for this moment for decades. And so when you run your own server, which runs your own services, which you access using the private web from anywhere in the world, there's nobody to extract value from you. Not only can they not spy on you, collect your data, abuse it, create honeypots of data that incentivize hackers, but they can't charge you a nickel because they have nothing to do with the equation. So we think that we're going to end up selling more devices for the economic incentive than the philosophic incentive, which is fine by us. We don't care why people do it. We just want to create a world where individuals are more sovereign. So there's my soapbox moment. <laughs> no, this is fantastic. I, I looked into what you guys do when you applied to be on the show, of course. I didn't realize how much, and I didn't realize maybe how simply that this was to do, like – Again, I take a more complex approach to a lot of things, but there's a lot of things, even though I run a server, I'm running a server maybe to run, mainly to run my business. There's a lot of things that Start9 enables that I guess I could do on my server, but I'm running a bare metal server in a co-location facility, right? Like that's a, a level of sovereignty, but like you said, it's not full sovereignty. Um, it's about as good as it gets with the company I'm with because they don't know what the hell's on my box, nor do they care. Um but, yeah, I mean, it's it's not like running AWS or something. But this is something that I now realize would benefit me. So get on the soft, soapbox all you want. Um, what got you you and, and your partners and your coworkers, et cetera, to the point where you decided it was time to do this, that this was the right thing to do? Um, so there was a lot of things that led up to it. Uh, like me personally, my, my past is like, in retrospect, it was going here, right? Like, you don't know it at the time. You never know the journey you're on until you look back. But it's like it was a single path leading exactly to what I'm doing now. Um, I remember, you know, being you know, 20 years old and, you know, carving the word. You know, there's some restaurants that allow you to, like, carve into the tables or, you know, write on the tablecloths and stuff like that. Anytime we went to a place like that, which oddly I went to a few, um, I used to just carve the word free into the wood, right? Like, I, like I'm a radical for freedom. Um, you know, I believe that people are good and that freedom is, is necessary, uh, for prosperity. And so, um, I, it took me a long time to figure out where the battle was taking place. I couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with the world. Like, why wasn't it going in the right direction? What was wrong? And I found my niche, right? We, we, we found a way to, to fight back in a very meaningful way. Like taking the data back is huge. Don't trivialize that. It's a, it is a major source of the, the, you know, malicious powers on earth right now is the control over information, the flow of data. In fact, you could even argue that we are in an information war and that control over information is the key to winning it. So we think we're on the front lines here. And the way that it came about, was after we had left Salt, um, my partners and I, uh, best people I have ever worked with. Um, we were so lucky at Salt 
to have found the kind of talent that we did. I mean, Keegan McClellan, one of my partners, just sort of showed up at the door and was like, I'm Keegan. And he was my first hire at Salt. And I was just like, dude, you are remarkable. <laughs> like, blew me away, his intellect and his, and his engineering skill, too. And then his younger brother came on. And then we built this whole team, and it was like unbelievable people. And we eventually decided that we could do better than we were doing at Salt um, from a philosophic, moral, practical, and economic standpoint. Just all of it. We just we wanted to do better. So we left, and we had no idea what we were going to do. Um, my hypothesis was take the best people I've ever worked with, the most talented engineers I've ever worked with, um, and lock them in a room together with me until something awesome comes out. <laughs> Uh, and I had a lot of confidence that something awesome would come out of that room. And we didn't know what we were going to do at first. We actually went through a couple different little ideas and tinkering. And we played with becoming a Bitcoin derivatives exchange where we would facilitate, you know, options trading and futures trading for Bitcoin derivatives. Um, and then we realized that in order to make that business happen, we were basically going to have to have more lawyers on staff than engineers. And we were probably going to need to lobby and do all this crazy, like we were going to be politicians and lawyers. And that was a non-starter. So we completely gave up that track. Uh, and ultimately, the way that Start9 came about was uh, Lightning, the Light Bitcoin's Lightning Network. So Keegan had set up his Lightning node and wanted to do some transactions. So he was like, all right, Matt, set up your Lightning node, and then we'll, we'll play with this thing. We'll see how, how good Lightning is, you know, if it's really working the way, the way they're claiming it would work. And so I sat down to set up my lightning node. It was going to be a weekend project. And I'm a pretty technical person. I mean, I'm a, I'm a software developer. I can code my own stuff. I'm not a good DevOps engineer. Like, I don't have a ton of experience with, like, Docker and servers and stuff like that. But I I could do it. I You know, I could do it better than 99.9% .9 of the people out there. So I sat down to do it. <laughs> Within, like, 30 minutes, I called him up and I was just like, uh, this is going to take me like a week. Like this is a huge undertaking to set up my lightning node and actually start transacting with it. Like it is a big to do. And I go, nobody's ever going to do this. Um, like nobody is in, you know, anyone except extreme geeks on the cutting edge. Yet we both believed we all did. Everyone, uh, all the founding members believed that Bitcoin was here to stay, was going to be an important force in humanity's future we still stand by that. And that lightning was going to be the layer upon which most payment and transactional activity took place. That Bitcoin was going to become a settlement layer, sort of like a court of appeals. But that most daily activity was going to take place on lightning. So how do you reconcile those two statements? A, a significant portion of humanity's payment infrastructure will be lightning network. But running your own lightning node is basically inaccessible. And that's a business opportunity. That's the definition of a business opportunity. So we were like, all right, how can we make running a lightning node easy? Not just easier, but easy so that anyone could do it. And as we went about solving that problem, we realized that we were solving a much bigger problem, right? We realized that the same technology and user experience that would enable a non-technical person to run a lightning node was the same technology that would enable a non-technical person to run anything, all varieties of self-hosted open source software. And we realized that we, in trying to solve the lightning problem, had stumbled onto what we think 
is a new computing paradigm. The, the future of humanity must be private relationships with sovereign uh, individuals and their computers, right? So computers are, you know, just a quick broad statement, computers are the most important tool humanity has ever invented, right? Like it's a tool for the mind. If humans are powerful because of their minds, uh, then computers are the the uh, a means of leveraging that, of gaining leverage on the thing that already makes us powerful. Um, and so it's important from a like base philosophic critical level that the relationship that you have with the most important tool in your life is proprietary, that it is not at the whim or permission or cost of another human. Because if another human controls your relationship and access to your computer, they kind of control your life. And the more important computers become to humanity, the worse it gets. So we think that the future is going to be individuals whose lives are completely automated, right? So you have uh, smart door locks, you have smart thermostats, you have smart speakers, you have uh, literally a humanoid robot serving you and cleaning your home and blah, blah, blah. Like we believe that the future of humanity is riddled with robots. We think robots are going to be everywhere. And the question is, who controls those robots? Are all the robots in your home controlled by the mothership cloud, ruled by corporations extorting you for dollars who they themselves have masters who can, you know, make you disappear on a whim? Or are those robots yours in the truest, most proprietary sense? Do they serve you and you alone? Um, and that's the, the binary future that humanity is heading to. And if you're to go into Apple or Google headquarters and say, what's the big vision here? What are you guys going after? What's the end game of everything that you're doing? They will tell you the robot future. They are trying to invade the home, right? <laughs> it's all the smart devices. It's the smart cars. It's the smart pencils and the smart windows and the smart everything. Control. It's all about who is going to control these robots. And Ironically, as small and as young as we are, we think that we are actually the leading organization slash company in the world that is working towards the alternative future <laughs> where the robots might just serve you. Um, and we couldn't think of a better, more cool thing to do. Once we realized that that's what we had stumbled onto, it became a feverish building process. Like, it was four of us originally. There's now nine of us. And we are working with the, an unlimited source of energy. Like the energy at this company is off the charts. Um, we've managed to pull in some fundraising from people who agree with our vision. And so now we're moving even faster. We're hiring. We're growing. Uh, and we're selling. We're selling these devices all over the world. We ship internationally. This is extremely impressive. Um I'm going to ask you a little bit of an odd question, though, here. Um, where'd you get the name, Start9? Um, I'm a marketing guy, and I generally say do what you say and say what you do. Um, yeah. Doesn't seem to do that, but it also sounds like a cool name. So where'd it come from? We had multiple people advise us to not use that name <laughs> for, for all the right reasons, which is that it doesn't say anything about us. Um, but we just loved it. It was personal to us, and we think that others might share in that if they understand, if they know what it is. So we 
we thought that it actually may have even opened up a marketing opportunity because if somebody goes, well, what's Start9? And then they hear the origin story, then maybe they even like us more. So we saw opportunities both ways. Um, so what Start9 is, uh, it was an old internet meme um, that was that came about on a um, phenomenon of, on Twitch. Are you familiar with Twitch? Yes, I am. I don't okay. use it, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, it's a live video streaming service where people can, you know, talk or do something, and there's a comment box, right? There's a there's a thing where people can engage while they're watching this live stream. So somebody decided to play Pokemon on Twitch. <laughs> um, just play it on Game Boy. So it was a Game Boy Pokemon, and people could watch the game. And what, what happened was they could actually play the game. So anyone who was watching the game on Twitch could enter a command into the comment box on the side of the screen. And the commands would go something like right three, left four, jump one, right? Like commands that would tell the character on the screen what to do. And you can imagine that if you get like a thousand people in the comment box and they're all telling this character what to do, that the character is basically just spinning in circles, jumping up and down, and not making any progress at all. The game is called Break the Pokemon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, just, it, was, it, it became known as Twitch Plays Pokemon, okay? Because Twitch, the, the, the streaming service, was playing Pokemon using the comments in the comment box. And it was a terrible game in that, like, the character couldn't make progress because everyone was fighting each other trying to tell them what to do. Um, yet, people really liked it. Like, it was enjoyable to a whole subculture of people. So what the game creator did was invent a new game mode called democracy mode. <laughs> and in democracy mode, um, the comments would be aggregated over, I think it was four second periods. So in other words, rather than entering a command, you were entering a vote. You say, I vote that the character move one space to the right. And at the end of every four seconds, the command that received the plurality of votes would be executed on the screen. Pretty cool, right? Like it, it, it now is more of a coherent game because now you and your crew could sort of roll into the chat box, coordinate amongst yourselves, and kind of like vote your way into being the rulers of the game, right? Because it's, it's not a majority of votes, it's a plurality. So all you needed was in many cases, all you needed was like three people coordinating their moves, even against a few hundred, and their moves would get executed because the other 297 people had no coordination at all. So the more you could coordinate your votes, the more you could control the game. Starting to sound like an analogy, right? <laughs> uh, so what happened was there was a bunch of people who hated this. They hated the democracy mode of the game. Um, largely because it was slow. It tended to like, it tended to become consolidated under the power of a few individuals, and it was slow. It just wasn't as exciting. The character wasn't doing as many crazy things as it was in the previous game mode, which became known as anarchy mode. So you had anarchy mode and democracy mode. And ironically enough, the mode that the game was being played in was itself a democratic process. Right? By majority vote, if more people playing the game wanted to play anarchy mode, then it went to anarchy mode. If more people wanted to play democracy mode, it went to democracy mode. So the people who really enjoyed anarchy mode, what they would do 
to switch the gameplay back, like if it was stuck on democracy mode, and they wanted to force the game back into a uh, into anarchy mode, they would go into the democratic gameplay, coordinate amongst themselves, and vote start nine. So all of these people would go into the comment box and type start nine, start nine, start nine. And what start nine means in the gameplay is open the start menu nine times in a row. It was the most disruptive thing they could possibly do so that anyone who was playing the game, when the start nine people showed up, the gameplay basically got ruined because all that would happen every four seconds was the start menu would just pop open and shut nine times. And the game basically grinded to a halt so that everyone would be like, fine, (laughs) and vote the game back to anarchy mode, and then they'd start playing again. So start nine was a way of opting out of this mode that tended to become very slow and very controlled and unleash uh, a bit of food. That That is the most geeked out nerd definition of why you call the company a certain thing I have ever heard, and I love it. I absolutely love it. So let's let's finish up a little bit more about what people can do with Embassy, which is your product that that, that, that basically is this plug and play server. I, I, I'm on your medium right now, and I'm like, I should have looked at your medium before I had this interview. Like, it's like we just added this, we just added this, we just added this, we just added this. It's like it's like crazy amount of things that you can do with this. Yeah. And and what's cool about it is it's not just like quantity. It's that everything is part of the same flow, right? Like once you once you know how to use the device, you know, using it for something new is not something you have to go learn. It's all very like intuitive. So for instance, when you install let's do burn after reading. So we have a service that we actually built, right? So first of all, let me let me say one other thing. Let me backtrack one more second. The things that are running on the embassy these services that you can install, by and large, are things that already exist. It's not like we are building these services. These services are out there. They are free and open source software that has been being worked on for years, sometimes decades, and kind of sitting in an obscure corner, right? A lot of people have made statements like open source software will eat the world. And yet there's been decades of open source software development and most people are using Facebook. And we're like, what is going on here? Why isn't open source software eating the world as the prophecy foretells? Well, it's because there was no plate. There was no utensils for the open source software. There was no operating system for it, right? People will be like, well, Linux. Linux is an operating system. I'm like, Linux, of course, but, but Mac OS is based on Linux. But it's not Linux, right? It's... It's a layer on top of it. It's an in a, it's a extension of Linux. Linux bare bones is good luck. You are using the command line, going you know downloading software, configuring it using Vim, and boom, you've lost everybody. What was needed was an operating system, and so we are not service developers. All the things that you can do on the embassy are things that have already existed. All we are doing is unleashing them. We are unleashing decades of open source software development and making it available to everyone with a button. The, the analogy, the analogy I'd come up with here is I, as I look at this and I do recognize some of these open source, uh, software items is imagine that 
all the apps that you could get from Google's or Apple's App Store were independent apps that you had to individually install and configure on your computer, but you also had to make them work with the rest of the world. And then instead of the phone came and then the apps came, imagine the apps came first. And then along comes Apple, makes this phone, and says, click this button to install app XYZ, and it will work, right? That's kind of what you did, except I know it's a bad analogy because they're the evil satanic cult, but it's it's sort of the same thing that you built this device that okay I want to add this functionality okay put it on there and it just works is is that pretty accurate yeah yeah and the, and and there's no compromise either right like when you get this device start nine is is not part of the equation anymore there's no there's no connection to the start nine mothership there's no subscription there's no Tell us your email and your password. Like none of that. It's your device, <laughs> and what you, the things that you are installing are things that have already existed on the internet that are written by people that you trust, and it's signature validated so that when you install it, you know that you're actually installing the binary, the software that you went to install, and that it's not the malicious thing. And Start Nine is not like we're not sitting in the middle of you and your computer. We we don't even know if you ever turned it on. We don't know if you've installed things on it. We don't know what you do with it. We don't know anything, which actually makes support kind of hard, right? Like when someone calls in to support and they're like, hey, you know, how do I do this thing or I'm having trouble with this? We're kind of starting from scratch. We don't have like a, oh, well, let me look up your profile, sir, and I'll tell you, you know, what we see on our end. I'm like, I know nothing. Like, <laughs> tell me, tell me what's going on and I'll try to help you through this, um, which is going to be a big challenge for us, but. We have we have some good ideas on how we can do it. We've been doing pretty well. Uh, we I think you need a screen capture video of everything you add. This is how you add it. This is how you use it. That's yep, which is what we're doing. We okay, have a, okay. We have a series that's blooming right now. But again, we were we were just a team of engineers at first, and we've only now begun to bring people onto the team who round us out from an operational and marketing and you know, standpoint, like we were just building technology for a year and a half almost. So now is the time where we start to like, you know, become a little bit more of a, a company. Um, so, um, man, I, I forget what the original question was. Like what, what, sent me what can we do? What, can, what, what does, what are some of the other things that it, like, I get it, I install it and I start using it. What are some of the, the, the functionalities? I mean, you really kind of hit this earlier, so we don't have to do too many more, but if there's anything else, do you want to point out, like, once I have this box in my house, it's great that I have privacy and all, but what are some of the things that it enables? Sure. So the Bitcoin stack is a is a good chunk of the services on the store. I think about a third to a half of the things that are currently on the marketplace have something to do with Bitcoin. So there's Bitcoin itself. There's the Lightning Network. Um, we have BTC Pay Server. So BTC Pay Server, if you're not familiar with it, is the, like, Shopify of Bitcoin. It is a way for you to, as a merchant, um, or as somebody who's raising money for uh, a cause or whatever, to accept both Bitcoin uh, on-chain and Bitcoin on Lightning Network as payment. So using our device, any mom or pop business that wanted to start taking Bitcoin as payment could do so by pushing a couple of buttons. Um, there's no technical expertise needed. Uh, obviously, you want to make sure that your keys, like, the, you know, the keys protecting the funds are secure using a hardware wallet, but we don't do that. 
right? That's, that's sort of a prerequisite. But when you're ready to start taking payments in Bitcoin, we make it a button, uh, super easy. And we do that using BTC pay server. So again, we didn't write BTC pay server. We're just making it easy to run BTC pay server. Um, Bitwarden I talked about, file browser I talked about, um, Mastodon is another service that's on our marketplace. Mastodon is, um, like Twitter, right? It's a, it's a Twitter like interface where you can interact with anyone all over the world. You make posts, you can comment, you can like things, you can do direct messages, you name it. You can do all the things that you can do with Twitter, except there's no Twitter. There's no central server, right? Mastodon is a federated open network. Um, and on your embassy, Mastodon runs as a Tor hidden server. So not only are you interacting with the Federation, not only are you, you know, engaging in social media with people all over the world, but you're, you're doing it from a, a very private place. Like you could do it anonymous, for instance. You could be a completely anonymous person on an open social media network. Um, and I don't mean like anonymous in the sense where you know, I create a Twitter account with some other email. Like, that's only anonymous to the people on Twitter. Twitter and their masters would absolutely be able to figure out who I was, right? Like, using very normal, uh, you know, uh, su- uh, surveillance technology. Whereas with Mastodon on the embassy, you can actually do it anonymously if you really wanted to. Um, and then uh, Burn After Reading was the one I was talking about earlier. That's right. I got sidetracked when I was talking about that. Let me tell you about Burn After Reading. So Burn After Reading is something that we built. Remember I was saying we don't build these services. We just make them available. Well, we built Burn After Reading. It was like a fun project. We got excited about it, thought it was really cool and built it. It took us like a week. So it, was, it wasn't like a huge undertaking. It didn't distract us enormously, but it's a very cool service. Burn After Reading is a way for anyone to share a secret, whether it's a message, uh, a financial statement, a photo, you name it, just a piece of content in an ephemeral, self-destructing way. So let's say I, I want to share with you uh, a password. Like okay. I want to give you a password to something of mine. Um, I could text message you. I could email you. I could send you a letter via snail mail, or I could use burn after reading. What happens with burn after reading is this, is the box in my home, right? Again, this is all through the embassy. So I go to my secret website, my secret burn after reading website, which is gibberish.onion. Um, and I upload the content that I want to share with you. So I type in the password and I hit save. Then I have the option and, you know, usually this will be the case is you encrypt it. So I will actually encrypt the content of the message with some secret password that we both know. The result of that is a link, an ephemeral Tor link. So I can now share that link with you or everyone on earth. Doesn't matter. I could post the link publicly. And the first person who accesses that link and successfully decrypts the secret message gets to see it. They can see it. They can copy it. They can download it. They can write it down, whatever they want. could be a picture, like I said. And then it burns forever. It's like we, we like to think of burn after reading as like the, the imagery of an old noble lord receiving a letter that's wax sealed and then they open it and read it and throw it in the fire and it's gone. It's like a very powerful idea, which is something secret just got communicated and it is literally gone from history. And you, you know that it's gone from history 
not because you trust whoever delivered the letter to destroy it when they were done, but because your embassy sitting in your home <laughs> running your software did it. So you don't have to trust anyone. You, 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 know you it. trust it because that's the way it works. Yeah, you trust right? it because it's coded in law in this world. It, it doesn't have an opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So real quick, let's, let's wrap up here, but I want to just kind of get people in the right mindset. A lot of times people hear, oh, this is easy, and they feel like it's going to be like when you go to the, the state fair or something, you got the barker, and he's like, look how this knife cuts, and you get home, and it doesn't do that. So, like, when you say it's easy and all, you still have people sitting here that I love this idea. I don't know that I'll be able to use it. So let's – I have ordered the embassy from Start9.com. It has magically showed up through the power of the shipping service, whether it's the U.S. Mail or UPS or whatever, in, in my front yard. And I went out and I got the box and I brought it in my house. What do I do to get it installed so that my computers on my network are using it? Great question. Okay, so here's here's how the setup process works. And it's different. Uh, so right, I, I should have said this early on. We are right smack in the middle of the largest OS software update we've ever had as a company. Um, and we've had a few big ones. This is huge. Um, and so the way that you used to set it up and the way that you're going to set it up when the new software ships are different. So anyone buying a device right now is basically it won't be shipped until the new software is ready. So you're, you're coming in. This conversation is happening on the eve of a gigantic product update. So I'm only going to tell you how it's set up in the new paradigm because anyone listening uh, will never do the old one. So right. So. Here's how, here's how you will set it up when it, when it's done. The new software. Take it out of the box. You'll plug it into power and you'll plug it into Ethernet, into your router or into any hot Ethernet port in your house. Doesn't matter. So you plug it into power and you plug it into Ethernet. The embassy will then serve up itself. It'll serve itself up as a website at an address on your local area network. You, that address will be part of the packaging. So when you open up the package, it'll tell you, plug in your embassy and then go to your browser, Chrome, Firefox, Brave, you name it, and type in blah, 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 dot local. It'll be start nine dash something, something, something dot local. It's unique for everybody. So you go to that website and that's it. You're on a website that's being served by a box in your home on your local area network. And there will be a three-step setup process where you'll type in a uh, secret code that's engraved on the bottom of the device, and that is used to encrypt. So I'm, I'm getting into some technical details here. You, won't, you don't need to know about this when you set it up. The code on the bottom of your device is used to encrypt the communications between your computer that you're using to set up the embassy and the embassy such that even somebody who's on your home network sniffing your traffic, like if there's a fan outside and they're connected to your Wi-Fi network sniffing your traffic, um, the setup process uh, is, is presumably still secure. So you open up this website. You type in this secret key that's engraved on the bottom of the device, which only you can see because you're looking at it. Um, and then you, um, you push a couple buttons. It'll be step one, step two, step three. And the result of step three is a Tor address. So the result of the setup process, which again is a couple of buttons, is an address. 
And that address will be some gigantic thing. It'll be gibberish, 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 dot onion. And that is now the home, the, the private internet website home of your embassy. So you'll copy it down, put it into your password manager, write it down, whatever. And then you can go visit it. So the setup process takes about one minute. So just to be clear on that, I go on vacation to Florida this fall, again, because I like it there. And I have my MacBook, and I pull up a browser, and I go to that Onion address. I am now using the box that's in my home, even though I'm 1,200 miles away. Yes, and you are using it end-to-end encrypted and Onion routed on the darknet. (laughs) Beautiful. It is is the most direct connection you can have with a remote device in this world, basically. Um, And you can access it from anywhere in the world. All you need is a browser. You can do it from your phone. You can do it from your laptop, your desktop. doesn't matter. All you need is the website, the uh, the onion address, and your password, right? During the setup process, you created a password. And so even if somebody gets their hand on your super secret onion address, they still can't do anything because they don't have your password. They have a public key to a crypto phrase without the private key, right? Like the, or to a crypto address. Like, like you can know my Bitcoin address and then you can see, like, it's actually less. It's like knowing the, the, the public address to a pirate chain wallet. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's there, okay, you know the address, and there's a zero. And, and without the other side of it, you get to look at a screen that doesn't do anything. Yep. Yeah, all cool. they would be greeted with is a, is a login screen. Yeah. They don't know the password, so they wouldn't be able to log in. Um, so, yeah, you log into your embassy. Uh, dashboard from anywhere in the world. And that's it. So obviously the first time you do this, right, the setup process takes about 60 seconds, maybe maybe two minutes at the most. Um, and the result is this address. Then you go visit that address. You log in with the password that you just set during the setup process, and you're in. And what you're looking at at this point after you've logged in is your embassy dashboard. It is the operating system that we have built. And once you're in there, you're greeted with a message right on the front screen that says, get, you know, welcome to your embassy. To get started, uh, shop the marketplace for services you want to install. And then you literally browse the marketplace, just like you would browse the App Store or the Google Play Store. You read the descriptions. You read the, you know, all the things. And there's images and screenshots and all that. And you install the things that you want to install. And after installation, so, for example, if you go to the marketplace and you install File Browser, File Browser is an incredibly useful service. Like I said, it's just Dropbox, but private, right, yours, uh, Google Drive. And so after you install File Browser, the result of the installation of File Browser is another brand-new, never-before-seen, gibberish, 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 dot onion URL. So now... Your embassy has a Tor address that you can visit from anywhere in the world in the browser, and your file browser has a different Tor address that you can visit from anywhere in the world. From the but browser. just so I understand that fully, when I use that file browser, I'm using the hard drive on the embassy. It's just a different right. address to get to it, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Each, All right. Every service that you install on the embassy hosts itself as a Tor hidden service dot onion URL that is accessible from anywhere in the world from the browser. And each service gets its own unique 
Tor address, which is why right out of the gate, we recommend using a password manager so that you don't have to remember these impossible to remember addresses. You just save them in your password manager. And now no matter where you go, whether it's from your phone or your laptop or your desktop, you just say, oh, I want to go to my file browser website. You click a button. It launches the website. You click another button. It autofills your super long, awesome password. And then you're in. And once you're in, all you do is upload files, download files, organize files, share files. It's just like using Dropbox, uh, except you're using your own website served by your own server over Tor. I'll say one other thing. It's not just Tor. Tor is kind of slow, right? Like if you've ever used Tor before, and I don't mean just using the Tor browser to go to facebook.com. I'm talking about like using the Tor network, like visiting Onion websites. Um, they can still be quite slow because it's being Onion routed around the world, right? It's taking these hops all over Earth. So instead of just point-to-point -point communication, it's being routed around. And so this was kind of an inconvenience. It's like, why should, you know, I'm, I'm sitting two feet away from this box. Why do I have to route requests all around the world? So what we did was we implemented a feature, which is that every service you install on your embassy not only gets a .onion Tor address, but it also gets a .local LAN address so that you can communicate with services running on your embassy directly on your local area network of your home using HTTPS, SSL. So it's fully encrypted. Obviously, you can only do this if you are connected to the LAN, right? Like, you can't go to the other side of the world and talk to your embassy on the LAN because you're not on the LAN. You have to use Tor. But if you're in your home, which people often are, then the communication between you and your embassy is lightning fast. It literally never even leaves the home. You could turn off your internet and you could still talk to your device. You could literally unplug your modem and still upload and download files from the device in your home. And it's on the land, so it's really fast. Like you could do multi-gigabyte files very quickly. I think that's important for people to understand, like, because you're not, you're using an onion address, you're using Tor, but you're not going to build Jolie Bob's website. You're going to your box. It's your computer. Yeah. Like this is what we started out with. People think this is really sophisticated, but the cloud is not the cloud. The cloud is just you're using Google's computer, you're using Yahoo's computer, you're using Facebook's computer. And in this case, you're using your own computer. So we are going kind of long. I just want to do like one more thing here. The basic process of this feature that I want on my box is not on there yet. It's the, I went to Medium. They said they added this. How much effort does it take? Let's combine two questions. How much effort does it take to install a new service? And number two, I see this as being something that I could do while I'm doing something else multitasking. It's that easy for me. If I'm kind of like the sysadmin of my home, does this get, as long as they're using these addresses or whatever, make, does this become pretty transparent to my wife, my grandson, whatever, if, they, if they're using the services that I've enabled? Yeah, so if, look, what, what's, what gets me all geeky about this is that, like, Normally, to do the kind of things that the embassy is doing, it, it's a couple of highly paid people at a corporation called DevOps engineers. Um, 
the feedback that we have gotten, so we've we've sold over a thousand of these devices, which is not a huge number in the grander scheme of things, but we've until now kind of seen it as a prototype. Like we've been iterating this thing and making it better. We're not ready for mainstream yet, right? Like we, we kind of are now. The new software update that's coming out in a week or two is is really our flag. Like that's it. It is awesome now. It's two years of, of learning and iterating, uh, you know, uh, packaged up into a new into a new product. Um, you can do this. The feedback that we have gotten from very non-technical people, okay, uh, is that they were blown away that they could actually do it. Like they've, they've bought so many things, especially in the Bitcoin lightning world, where it's like, oh, it's super easy, blah, blah. It's like easy in the way that like using the Internet in 1988 was easy. It's like it's not really easy. It's possible. We've made this really easy. If you can set up an Alexa or a Google Home you can do this. In fact, it's easier. We, we've done a side-by-side comparison of like the mainstream products being sold by Amazon and Apple versus our product. And ours is easier to set up than theirs. <laughs> then once you're in, it's just using a website. Like if you're comfortable logging into Dropbox or Google Drive and uploading files and downloading files, you can use this device, right? If you're comfortable um, using Google Photos in order to create albums and share them with friends and family using links, you can use this device because that's all we've done, right? We, we feel so, we feel like pirates in a sense because Apple and Google and Microsoft and them, they have spent the last two decades doing R&D, doing user experience market research to create products that are highly usable by grandma. Like that's been their whole thing. They've done it for two decades where they wanted to make everything really, really easy. And they succeeded. So all we did was copy them. We didn't do anything different. Using your embassy feels like using a website. You just go to a website, you log in and there's a dashboard and you want to install things. You click a button and it's installed and you want to let your family use those things. Like, if you wanted to give your wife access to your Dropbox account, right, how would you do it? You'd say, here's, go to dropbox.com, here's the username and password, log in. And then she would log in and be able to use it. It's absolutely no different here. If you wanted to give your family members or your friends access to your embassy such that they could create their own accounts, by the way, like you don't have to give them your username and password to your file browser or your Bitwarden or your Bitcoin or any of it. They can use the device in your home to create their own account. Now, we don't recommend this in general because it's like all they've done is instead of using Apple and Google as their central, all-powerful service provider, they're now using you as that. <laughs> so, like... You now have their data. You could delete things. You could censor them. Like, you're the, the service provider now. You're the server host. But here's the thing. Close friends and family, of course, they trust you. It's much better than Apple. I would, I would a hundred times over rather create an account on a family member's device in their home to do my photo sharing rather than create an account on Google. So anyone in the family can create their own accounts on these services. And all you need to do is give them the address. 
they go, they click create account, they enter their username and password, and they're in, and they have their account. So if I can find any technological limit on this that might impact some people, depending on how much they want to do, it would be the space on the hard drive on it. It's like you can upgrade it to like two terabytes. Um, I don't think it's a huge limit, but if we're going to run a lightning node in a full Bitcoin node, we start to eat up some space. We start using files, et cetera. Is there any way to expand that? Like I run for my whole, all my computers in my home, I run a six terabyte networked hard drive. Like could that interface or is it something that we can um, upgrade later or, or what have you? Yep, that's what we're doing, actually. So, first of all, the 2 terabyte is just the biggest hard drive that we sell with the device. The hard drive is actually external to the device. So, you do Mm -hmm. not have to buy the hard drive from us. You can just buy an embassy and then use your 6 terabyte hard drive as its data volume. And and it's very easy to do. It's, It's literally, you just plug it into the device, and during the setup process, it'll say, we've detected this hard drive plugged in. Do you want to use it as the, as the data volume? You just click yes and you're done. So the storage oh, capacity, the storage capacity of this thing is quite frankly limitless. You could use as big of a drive as you can get your hands on. Um, and in the future, we're actually going to create, um, what we're referring to as like personal clusters of servers, right? So you could have an embassy in Colorado and an embassy in Florida and an embassy on the other side of the world. And they will all be aware of each other, uh, backing yeah. data up, backing up data on each other, um, and acting as like doing load balancing so that if one goes down, the others pick up the slack. Um, and so now you're not just, you don't just have a personal server. You have a fleet of servers that are acting in concert to make sure that you never go down. You never go dark. Oh, I can, I can build my own freaking enterprise level extranet for me and my team with that. I mean, that's, and that is replacing dozens of people who I would normally have to employ. That's that's freaking through the roof, badass. Yeah, and it's not today. That's that's not what it is today. Understood, but it's good to have a vision, bro. <laughs> yeah. So look, Matt, I'm sold. I'm going to buy one. But, hey, I mean, I look out for my members of my MSB program, and I look out for myself. And, and I'm wondering, would you guys be interested, because I love this entire thing, in joining – uh, our MSB is a supporting vendor and doing a discount for those folks. I know you might have to kind of crunch some numbers and figure out exactly what the discount code will be and get that to me in the next day or two. But would you be interested in doing that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we, we are interested in um, expanding this technology and building a business. So um, we would be more than happy to offer a standing discount to any of uh your listeners or premium members or whatever, um, I'll get back to you on exactly what we can do. Um, but yeah, man, count us in. Awesome, guys. So if you're if you're if you're chomping at the bit to buy one of these, wait a day or so. You'll see an announcement come out, and we'll get you guys a discount on this. As soon as it comes in, I'm going to order one. Get this hooked up in my place. I think this is one of the most important steps toward individual sovereignty that people can get their hands on. And I'll, I'll point out, like. The base model with the one terabyte hard drive is like 400 bucks and change. And that might seem expensive, but again, this is really important for you to understand. This is a one-time purchase. So if you look at something being 50 bucks a month, you're at $600 a year, right? And, and so this gives you all this power for a one-time purchase. I, I do have one more question before we wrap up. And that is, you said I can buy this without the hard drive. I don't see that option. I don't see like no hard drive as an option. 
if you if you go into the product page, like if you view either the one or two terabyte, you know, variety. Yeah. In the description, it says if you want to buy this without a uh, hard drive, click here. Okay, so if I would have like not been a dumbass and read, of course I was paying attention to you. So I, that's my excuse. Okay, yeah, it's, it's right there. That's awesome because the fact that you can use any hard drive, that's freaking. That that just takes any limitation and makes it go goodbye. So so that cheaper because the the hard drive is a huge portion of that cost, right? Like oh yeah, it drops to three hundred bucks. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. Right. <laughs> cool. Yeah, because like I said, I'm sitting here with a six terabyte hard drive. Why 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 would I buy a, a one or a two? Yeah. So keep in mind, the hard drive needs to be able to plug in over USB three. Sure. Right. Okay. Um, and that, that's really the only requirement. As long as you can plug it into the embassy over USB three, it'll work. That's badass. So let's go ahead and wrap up. Let's tell people how they can find out more about you guys um, as far as links, stuff they can read online, etc. Uh, everything is pretty well consolidated at Start9.com. Um, from there, you can view past uh, podcasts and interviews that I've done. Uh, we have a blog. We have you know the list of all the services. We have a Twitter account that we maintain. That's been our primary marketing engine. Um, and that's it. We're, we're not everywhere, but startline.com has what you need. Very cool. And I, I am definitely going to recommend people follow you guys on Medium too, because that's, that, that is a, an ever, an ever running list of new things that you can add and how to add them. And so I'll make sure that and everything else is in the show notes. Uh, I knew this would be a good interview. This turned out to be more exciting and more interesting than I, than I even thought it was going to be. And I love what you're doing. And this is how we start taking people to the point where they can take their, 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 the control of their lives back. Because everybody knows how bad it is. No one's like, oh, gee, I think it's fine what Apple does. I think it's fine. Unless you're stupid and then I guarantee you, you didn't listen to this episode. You probably don't listen to this show, right? Everybody with a brain, everybody with an IQ over about like 85 knows how bad this is. They know that, you know, terms and conditions, 88 pages long. Nobody reads it. I guess I want it except no one really understands what to do about it. Even when people know they can do something about it, I think they just feel like I can't. I like, I know you can, but, but, but I can't. I hear that a lot with technical things. And I, I don't think I'm as technical as people think. That's why I hire technical people. Um, this is plug and play and a little bit of a learning curve. And I think it's less of a learning curve. I think I would actually call it more of a habit curve. Instead of going to Google Drive, you go to your own Onion Drive, right? Like that's – and I think this is the thing. Anybody can do this. And as long as the money's not going to you know, end up you're eating Top Ramen for the next six months, it, it, it's probably worth doing. So, so thanks for being with us today, man, really. Yeah, I really appreciate and thank you for, for getting this, right? I mean, you, <laughs> as I talk to a lot of people and, uh, not, not all of them go, oh, got it. Yeah. <laughs> I no, exactly no, I get it. I mean, really. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Um, yeah, and we're, we're gonna keep, we're gonna keep, uh, plugging away at this. We have a long road, big, a lot of stuff to build. So. Well, again, I, I really appreciate you guys and what you're doing and, and for spending time with us today. And, and I just like, again, thank you for being on the air and ha have a great day. Cool. Good. You too. Bye now. So I really kind of had to hit him up. Like I had to actually take him off air, hit him up, get the agreement for the discount. Um, and then come back on air and finish up with you today. I, uh, 
when I realized how awesome this 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 product was, not only did I want one, I wanted to get a discount on it. I wanted to get you a discount on it. I'm already sent him the information he needs to set up as a vendor. I'm expecting the way they seem to get things done today, tomorrow. If there's any delay, it'll be me getting the damn thing entered into the MSB. So if you're thinking about buying one of these, I don't know exactly what the discount's going to be. They were going to go back and check and see what they could do. Um, but if you're an MSB member, give it a wait. I have a feeling with a product in this price range, you know, this will be something for somebody even paying full price for an MSB will probably at least cover half just from one item. And this is something... I, 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 I don't want to sound like all of a sudden they're a sponsor, because they're not, right? And I won't be out here pounding it every day. Uh, but this is something I really believe, and I want to make sure you guys have it available to you. And I'll let you know, I had a choice when we had this discussion. I could have become an affiliate, recommended it, sold it, and made money off it. And I told them I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get this into the MSB. I want this to in, in the, as many hands as can get it. I want us to start figuring out what we can do with it together. I want to start. I'm going to, I'm doing it. If all it did for me was let me run a lightning node, I'd be pretty excited about it. With everything else, it's all gravy. Uh, I'm going to get set up with one of these. I think you should too. But if you're MSB, wait a day or two, get the discount. With that, remember, if you like the show and the work that we do, MSB is one way you can help support us, become a member, get discounts, spend the money, uh, save the money, and you end up, you know, doing, doing better off than if you weren't a member. Uh, even if you don't like me, but if you do like me, and I hope you do, uh, you get to help support the show that you listen to all the time, and you get discounts on top of it. The other thing you can do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day today is a kitchen, kitchen item. You want this if you don't already have a good pair of these. They're the Fiskars 7-inch take-apart kitchen shears. I know they just look like a pair of scissors. They're not. They are made for kitchen shears, and they do certain things kitchen shears need to do, or you shouldn't use them. The two big things, actually three big things, one, they have micro serrations, so they actually cut and stay sharp, okay? And they're powerful enough to do something like take the backbone out of a chicken. If it can't do that, I don't need it, okay? The other thing they do is they come apart when you want them to, But they don't come apart when you don't want them to. Every pair of take-apart shears, except one other brand they don't make anymore, that I've found that's decent from a quality-cutting power standpoint and comes apart the way it should, tends to come apart when you're using it because they're designed wrong, and you, when you open them enough to use them, you open them far enough for them to come apart. These don't do that because of the way they're designed. If they started to do that because they got out of adjustment, Two seconds and a pair of pliers, you could fix them. I've never had to, but you could because you see how they work. Why do they got to come apart? Because if you go in and take the backbone out of a chicken, throw them and wash them and whatever, and, and you, even if you don't use them for other things, and your wife or your husband comes along or whatever and decides to cut salad greens up with them and they got chicken skank in them, you can get freaking salmonella. That's why. The only way you can use shears on something like cutting a backbone out of a chicken, which is a great use for them. I use them for processing older quail, etc. Then you need to be able to take them apart and completely clean them, or you, should, or you shouldn't do it. Well, we'll get two pair. Well, what about when you screw them up? Food poisoning is not something to jack around with. Like, it just sucks. It can be really high consequences for it, too. These things are 14 bucks. They will last you for the rest of your life. I love mine. Give them a shot. You will too. But remember, no matter what you buy, start your shopping on tspaz.com and you'll help us out no matter what it is. That brings us to our song of the day today, guys. 
song of the day is Billy Joel's song because it's Billy Joel week. And this is a song I've always loved. And I'm not a huge fan of New York City. I'm really not. But I was a much bigger fan of it at one time than I am now with what's been done to it. And this takes me back to like when I I used to be, um, for those that don't know, I I worked for a company called Fluke Networks. I was a Northeast Regional VP uh, of sales for Fluke Networks. And part of my territory was New York. And being that big a part of the market, I spent a lot of time there, hung out in a lot of cool places, kind of jazz club type places and cool places like that. And uh, this song kind of takes me into that mode. This is also a song that very much, you know, this screams sitting down on the back porch late in the evening, just the music playing, maybe the dog hanging out with you, smoking a cigar, drinking a bourbon or a martini or something, and and listening to music like this uh, in the quiet, alone, or with a really good friend, maybe having a cigar. And with all that, it actually gives me a very strong Frank Sinatra vibe. I've always loved Frank's music. But the song was actually inspired by someone else kind of in that vein, But and I hear it, but not as... It, it just pushes me toward kind of the Frank Sinatra thing. But the, the artist that it has an association with, that, that Billy Joel had some discussions with and was thinking of when he wrote this, was Ray Charles. And when you know that, you're like, yeah, I can see that. But it does have kind of that Rat Pack, 1960s kind of vibe to it. And I dig music like that. It's a little bit of a curveball from Billy Joel. It it is typical in a Billy Joel song. It starts out really soft and it builds through the song in like sort of a crescendo format. And I just think it's a cool song. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. So easy 
heaven day by day Out of touch with the rhythm and blues But now I need a little give and take The New York Times The Daily News It comes down to reality It's fine with me Cause I've let it slide I Don't care if it's Chinatown Or Rock Riverside I don't have any reason Left them all behind I'm in a New York state of mind I'm in a New York 